0: you're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, good morning, RCC. My name's Adam. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here, along with the other pastor, Adam Wilson. And uh, if you were here with us last week, we talked through 2 Samuel chapter 5 and we talked about waiting, and I think God wants to give us an opportunity to practice what we preach because we find ourselves waiting uh, to gather in person. Uh, we're not gathering uh, because of, the, it's not really because of the snow, it's because we need a new occupancy permit on this new building we just uh, received by God's provision. And so we want to submit to the governing authorities and be wise. And so we have a fire uh, inspection this week and we're hoping this week we'll be able to meet in person uh, this upcoming Sunday, but no guarantees. Uh, our councilman has been incredibly helpful for us in this process. We've been talking with his office and so. So uh, be praying for us, be joyfully waiting, we're in the Lord's timing right now, and uh, you know, this whole year's been weird, uh, year has been weird, so we're kind of used to this, uh, but uh, we're going to wait and celebrate along the way. Uh, this morning we're in 2 Samuel 6, if you're new with us, we love going through books of the Bible, and that's what we're doing this morning, Second Samuel 6, and what an interesting text uh, Pastor Adam just read. Uh, you're probably not going to read that to your kids later today. Uh, a lot of interesting things happening. Um, This sermon we're about to go through, this text, is really for anyone who's ever been bored at church, because I know that's been all of us, including myself. We got people getting struck dead here in this chapter. We got men dancing naked. So if you like the movie Magic Mike, you're going to love church this morning. (laughs) But most importantly, we're going to see, and this is really our main point, is, and I, I titled this sermon, A God Worth Dancing For, because we see friends like we got a God that's worth us cutting the robot for. like we should be celebrating like crazy we should be a happy people because of the God we serve we'll see that in chapter six and what we're going to see as we read through the chapter is every Christian should have this unique combination of fear and joy fear and joy fear because have you seen what this God is like and then joy because that God chose not to destroy me but to unite himself to me so let's jump in as we start 2 Samuel 6 the text we just read we see that David uh, has come and he's just taken the land that God has promised like a thousand years ago a lot of exciting things happening David is establishing Israel this puny little nation of slaves into now a global superpower And now that Israel is more secure as a nation, David turns his eye to the most important task on his mind. And this task consumed him. This next objective that takes up this chapter is so important that in Psalm 132, David vows, I will not sleep. I won't even go in my bed until I accomplish this objective. You ever want to do something so badly you can't sleep? That's what David's going for here. And the objective is he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the capital that he's just established, the city of Jerusalem. Why is this such a big deal? Why does he want to bring the Ark into Jerusalem? Well, when you think Ark of the Covenant, think like the one ring in Lord of the Rings. Like everyone's clamoring for this thing. There's so much power. This box had a lot of power. And it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant itself that was powerful. It's like, it's just a wooden box that man made. The reason the Ark is more than a box, though, is because it represented to Israel the presence of Yahweh, the presence of God. Obviously, we know God doesn't live in a box. I think that's literally a saying. But He chose the Ark of the Covenant as the place where He would manifest His presence among His people. He says in Exodus 25 of the Ark, There I will meet with you. There I will speak with you. The ark was like a beacon for God's presence. God dwelt there. And so closely was this ark identified with God's presence that when Israel traveled, the ark would in fact lead Israel. And before Israel would get up and move to another place, Moses would say first, advance, O Lord. And then the ark would go. And then the people would follow the ark is kind of like Tom Brady's jersey tonight. Like on anyone else, it's just a hundred dollar jersey. But if that brother wins another Super Bowl in that jersey, that jersey's gonna be worth a million dollars, and we're all gonna throw up because how many, like how many Super Bowls can this guy win? <laughs> the ark was valuable, just like the jersey would be, or will be, hopefully not, but it will be, because of who chose to dwell in it. God made the ark his home on the earth. And so David is determined to bring this to his home in Jerusalem because he wants God's presence to be the central focus of Israel. But here's the problem. And we're gonna see this all throughout this chapter, in two specific examples in Uzzah and Michael. The problem is that the people are casual about God. They're bored with him. They don't tremble at the thought of his presence. So what David and his 30,000 men do, I mean, just imagine David and 30,000 men. That doesn't include the women and children. They put this ark on a cart. It's driven by some oxen, and they're taking it to Jerusalem, the capital. And this man named Uzzah is in charge of overseeing the ark on this journey. Pretty important job, Uzzah's got. And during the journey, they're celebrating. They're having a parade, like a victory run, because not only do they have their nation, not only do they have their king, but they got the ark, and it's going home, baby. You look through the chapter, you see they're singing songs, they're playing instruments. Verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. Verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled, or stirred up, against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So, Uzzah was trying to stop the ark from falling to the ground. He caught it, and then God struck him down and killed him. I think it's easy just to read this and miss the horror of this story. I mean, just imagine you're having one of the best days of your life with all the people you love. You're out in the streets with all the women and children and men playing instruments, singing, celebrating. You're you're, you're a nation of slaves. Now you're a superpower. There's feasting and singing and laughing but suddenly an ox stumbles, the cart falls, you hear some thunder and you see a flash of light and there's a man lying dead on the road. The children are crying, the women who are laughing are screaming and David is panicking. A del- day of celebration just turned into a day of mourning. I don't know about you, but to be honest, the first time I read this, I was bothered by this story. Like, sure, yeah, Numbers 4 says that to touch the ark was a direct violation of God's law. I know. And God did warn Israel, if anyone touched the ark, they would surely die. And yes, the way Uzzah carried the cart with the oxen, you know, that method, was not the method that the Lord had commanded his people to use. The ark was supposed to be carried by Levites only, these holy men, on poles holding it up. But still, Uzzah was just trying to help. The cart hit a pothole, and he didn't want the ark to fall on the ground. It seemed like a trivial mistake with good intentions. Like, what was Uzzah supposed to do? Like, let it fall in the dirt? Maybe you've read the Bible and gotten to a section, or perhaps even a verse a verse about hell a verse about judgment a verse about sexuality or gender roles or church whatever it is and he walked away confused maybe he even walked away angry at what it said well I just want to encourage you that that happened to people in the 6th century BC too David sees Uzzah gets struck dead for catching the holy ark from falling to the ground and he gets angry at God oh ho ho you're supposed to be a loving compassionate God why in the world would you kill him for trying to catch it? And I think most of us in Western society would have responded in the exact same way. I think we do oftentimes when we read something in the Bible that just doesn't make sense to us. I think it's because we live in an era of good intentions. Like Uzzah was probably a pretty good guy. had his flaws, but I'm sure he's a nice dude. He didn't deserve to die. He was a sincere guy who just wasn't really focused on the specifics of the worship. Well, friend, this story tells us how God feels about that attitude. God does not take kindly worship that disregards his standards. This story is showing us that you can't just stroll up to God however you please on your own terms. He's showing us here harshly it's his way or no way. He's God, you're not. And it doesn't matter what your good intentions are. You may not like that there's a hell. You may not think 70 years of sin is worth a lifetime of separation from God. You may not like the concept of judgment. You may not like that Jesus is the only way to heaven according to the Bible. You may not like what the Bible says on abortion, or sexuality, or orphans. Or orphans. And if you don't like it, well, to put it bluntly, when you have your own universe, you can run it however you want. In the meantime, it's his. Uzzah probably thought, as he went to reach for the ark, as he carried it hey as long as I have the right heart as long as I get it to Jerusalem who cares the method like car, oxen and carts, who cares if it's Poles and Levites, whatever and don't touch the ark well you know I'm trying to help You know, I'll catch it honestly it's kind of like you thinking hey I love Jesus so who cares who I sleep with hey I love Jesus so what does it matter how involved in the church I am well and this is Uzzah's key problem he was casual God. He failed to understand his own sinfulness and God's infinite holiness. Uzzah saw that the ark was headed towards the dirt and he reached out to catch it because he assumed his hand was cleaner than the dirt. And most of us would have done the same thing because we just don't see how other God is. And it's so interesting, I think the North American church is so weak. is because we presume that we can be near God and be just fine. We've lost our reverence of Him. We think God ought to have Cinda saved us from our sins. I hear people all the time call God the man upstairs. Does this look like a man upstairs to you? <laughs> We don't see him as he is. And so when we read stories like this in the Bible, we don't fall on our face before the glory of the Lord. We either get angry and ignore them or rush past them and and trivialize them. We Disney stories like this up and we remain casual about our God. I I, I was reading... um, one of the, you know, those kids stories, Bible stories to my son, Aiden, who's three. And we were reading the story of Noah and my son loves the story of Noah. He, like all oh, the animals, there's the lions and there's the elephants and there's the the mice. And it, 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 it's so funny, like I'm sitting there reading the story of Noah with my son and like, he loves it. Oh, there's the rainbows, the primary colors, red and you know, and like all, the story of Noah to him is all rainbows and animals and boats. We, we laugh about this story and celebrate it with our kids. I have seen, I've been in children's ministry programs that have this, the, the Ark and Noah painted on the walls. Do we know what happened in that story? If you just read it, like the creator of the universe looked at mankind and said, every inclination of man's heart is evil. Like there's nothing good in human beings. And he decided because of the wickedness and the evil done human beings to one another and to God, God decided, I'm going to drown every living human being, except for Noah's family. You ever seen someone drown? It's horrific. They're gasping for breath, flailing, trying to grab onto anything. And they slowly die as the water fills their lungs. Could you imagine Noah's family on this boat seeing everyone they know drown to death? That's God saying, you're evil. And I'm holy. And instead we make books about the story and laugh about it. And point out the animals. You read stories of Noah, you read stories of Uzzah and you think... God is so holy, and we are so not. And I know you you probably think of the stories like, well, that's the Old Testament God. That's that's not God now. He changed. Read the New Testament. He's better now. Really? Read the book of Acts? Read the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Jesus has just established the early church, and this couple says, hey, we're going to sell this land and give it all to the church. They did a building campaign, kind of like what we just did, an investment campaign. And Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their land, but they withhold some of it and give some of it to God. They're pretty good. I mean, they give a significant gift to the church. This is a great thing, right? Well, God says to them, you you lied. You said you were giving this amount, but you didn't. It'd be kind of like you saying, I'm going to give five grand to 100 years for the city, and you really only gave one grand. You still gave a grand. No. God says, You lied and he strikes them down at church. They instantly die. God says, I will not have liars in my church. And the people have to carry their bodies out of the building of the home and bury them. He's holy, we are not. And this all culminates to the central climax of the Bible, the cross. Our sin apparently was so heinous, that the flawless Son of God had to come to earth to be torn to shreds. Crucifixion was an unspeakably brutal process, meant to inflict maximum pain and maximum shame. The torment was unbearable to watch. In fact, the Roman author Cicero said that when the Romans crucified women, they would crucify them backwards so the people were not forced to watch their agony. That was the punishment God himself said needs to be taken for our sins. It was unbearable, it was disgusting, it was brutal. And that's precisely the point. The reaction we ought to have to the stories of Noah, the story of Uzzah, Ananias and Fire, and ultimately at the cross is horror that this is what sin costs. The cross and all these stories remind us we have no room to be anywhere near a holy God, let alone a wooden box with his, a little bit of His glory on it. Stories like this in Scripture show us there's, there exists something so far greater than ourselves. There's a God so far above us that to be in His presence is certain death. You can't even stare at the sun from 93 million miles away you obviously can't touch the sun and survive. So you think you can just stroll up to the maker of a billion suns in a billion galaxies? We're so productivity-obsessed. We're so focused on speed that we have no category in our culture for sacred things, for slowing down and standing in awe. We carelessly rush into prayer, assuming God ought to give us everything we want, rather than cautiously approaching His throne with holy fear. We take holy communion without any self-examination, without any thought. We skim God's Word like we're in a doctor's waiting room reading a magazine we don't really care about, instead of examining it as the very Word of the Creator of the universe We treat the church like it's a valley service for our wants instead of the place where God is manifesting His glory, the people He has united Himself to, His body. Something far better than a wooden box. You know, the Scriptures say that the demons believe that there is one God and they shudder at the thought of Him And most of us, when we think about God, we don't shudder anymore because it's become so ordinary, so stale. It's probably because we bought this 21st century lie that joy comes from being the God of our own lives, so we don't have time for the real God. And so we create and erect shrines of our own glory on Facebook and Instagram, trying to fill the world with beautiful images of ourselves too focused to look at the glory of God. And what we don't realize, friends, is that true joy does not come from being our own God. It does not come from clamoring for, for attention. True joy comes standing forgotten in a multitude of the redeemed. Standing amongst the people Jesus has made his own. Lost in a sea of worship, all of us every nation, every tongue, every tribe countless multitudes staring at the one being who's worthy of all our lives shuddering at the thought that he would unite us to himself and so when we gather as a church we are approaching holy ground you get to come and worship something else someone who's other than us I heard a pastor one time say somebody came to his church service and said I don't really like church today you know the message wasn't really on point and the songs weren't my flavor and the pastor said I don't really care because we weren't worshiping you we're not here for you you're not in your living room right now watching this for you when we gather it's not for you it's for Him. Because we need to see, see His glory. We're looking at someone far greater than us. And Sam, 2 Samuel 6 is here to show us that when you see God as He is, you will have a shiver of terror run down your spine. you ever seen the movie Lion King, the old animated original? There's a scene where the hyenas are talking about the king, Mufasa. <laughs> You know I'm talking about it. And they say, oh, say the name, say the name. Mufasa. Ooh, Mufasa. <laughs> say it again, say it again. Ooh, Mufasa. Everyone who sees the glory of God says, Yahweh. Yahweh. Just the thought of Him should bring butterflies to our stomach. And friend, the, your entire life, your entire eternal being, because you are an eternal being, is counting down to the moment when you stand naked before Him. And He will be so bright, you can't see anything. He's so bright, the scriptures say, that the angels cover themselves with their own wings so as not to be seen and not to see the glory of God. And every sinner that stands before him will face the fate of Uzzah. And there's only one thing that can protect you. 1 Peter 1 says that God has provided for us a shield, a protector, a guardian from his glory and from his wrath. And it's his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus who will lead us, it says, into an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And because of this shield that God has provided in Christ, as Peter says, we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. We're so happy we can't even express it. And David, in this text, moves from this anger at how could you, God, to a wonder at his glory, to a joy that this God would be one with David. See, for a time, once Uzzah's killed, David, he just abandons God. He gets upset. He says, I don't want anything to do with the ark. I'm leaving it at the house of Obed-Edom. But God woos David back to himself. David essentially says, God, leave me alone. And God says to David, I love you too much to do that. And David sees the blessing the Ark has on this home of Obed-Edom. And he realizes, man, life without God isn't worth it. True blessing is in relationship with God. And he realizes, I know God is terrifying and holy, but I still, like, the Ark needs to be in Jerusalem. God needs to be in Jerusalem, our city, our capital. And so he endeavors a second time to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. And this time he actually follows the Lord's commands. He pays attention to the details. The Levites carry it on the poles, and they make sacrifices along the way, honoring God. And once the ark gets to Jerusalem, David loses it. He's so happy. He throws a rave. In fact, he's, he's dancing, as the text tells us, in his underwear he's so happy. Please don't do that today. Maybe alone. But the gospel makes us so happy we can dance in our underwear. uh, David's even handing out cakes, eating meats, because when you're having a good day, you eat cake and meat. And there's something about raisin cakes in here. I don't know what that's about, but apparently raisin cakes were a thing. Music is playing. David is like, this God, this God, I just saw his glory destroy my friend. He's so holy, but this God dwells with us, and we are his people. And friends, how much more joy can we have today than David? How much more do we have reason to dance? God, He doesn't just dwell in our city, in a box that's near us. God dwells in our hearts. We've been made sons and daughters of this God. And now we don't approach the throne room in terror. We have this wonder, but yet we can approach Him like children and his spirit is in us making us more like him and securing us the deposit of the gospel in us until we reach him forever what a great reminder that we can and should be a happy people a dancing people if you ever come to a church that's unhappy they have bad theology the church should party harder than anyone at Fell's point because we have been given unhindered communion with this God So we can dance. We can eat raisin cakes. and Take the raisins out. We can eat the cakes. (laughs) Because we deserve the fate of Uzzah and the people of Noah. We deserve the fate of Ananias and Sapphira. Who among us hasn't exaggerated? Who among us hasn't been uh, irreverent towards God? And yet, we get to dance like David. Notice in one part of this chapter, you, you cheer with God's joy. In another part of this chapter, you tremble before God's holiness. You have both emphasized in one chapter. Fearfulness and gladfulness, gladness are held together in one. In God's presence, you have reason to shudder and reason to dance. 2 Samuel 6 teaches us that a fearful sense of God's holiness does not suppress our joy. In fact, it stimulates our joy. There's always this, I can't believe this God loves me in your mind. Psalm 2 says that we rejoice with trembling. You have to be one of God's children to understand this paradox. And the chapter ends for us with a warning. A warning in the person of Michael, David's wife. Michael is chill, casual, unimpressed with God. And in fact, she's condescending towards the people who are impressed with God. She makes a sarcastic comment to her husband, David, because apparently wives still did that 2,500 years ago. Michael says, How the king of Israel honored himself today. Meaning, you're a fool. You're dancing in your underwear before your people. What are you doing? They're not going to respect you. You should be in your royal robes, refined and distant from the people. But David essentially says to her, Michael, how could I not dance? Like, do you see what's happening? The God who strikes us down by his very presence because of our sin has condescended unto us. He now dwells among us, and we are his people. And it pleases him to bless us, it's in his very character to love us. I'd be more willing to be even more undignified than this. I'm so happy. You may have been around a worship leader that ridicules you for not clapping loud enough or singing loud enough. Come on, guys. And that never seems to work well. It always seems to get more awkward. David is not dancing because anyone asks him to. David's dancing because he's seen God's holiness up front and this God is brighter than the sun and still chooses to care for him. And like David, if we saw God for who he is, and we truly walked with Him, and truly understand, understood the promises and blessings He has given us, we'd be dancing too. But sadly, we're too consumed with our lives. And many of us simply just need to admit that our dignity and our other interests are more important to us than responding to the gospel. And we need to repent. 2 Samuel 6 is a warning to us to avoid the traps of Uzzah and Michael, to have this coolness towards God, a lack of reverence towards Him. In fact, I encourage you to read Revelation chapter 3 later today. God repulses when you're whatever about Him. He says, I'd rather you be hot, like crazy about me, or cold, want nothing to do with me. But if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In the Greek, it means I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because to see me for who I am and to act like I'm not there and I don't care and I'm not involved in your life is the greatest insult you can give me. Perhaps you need some help to know what the spirit of Uzzah and Michael looks like today. I wrote just a few examples of what this mindset of Uzzah and Michael might be like for you. First, I think is... You might be like Uzzah and Michael if you've lost your wonder. You've lost your awe. If the ordinary means of grace are boring to you. If prayer, if talking to this God is boring to you. If communion, like reminding yourself of the body of Christ that was broken. And the blood of Christ that was poured out. For your holiness, taking that and dwelling on that is boring to you if Scripture, hearing the words of God, is boring to you, if church is lame to you, then you might be like Uzzah and Michael, because the first step of a backsliding Christian is to lose your wonder. Secondly, if you play fast and loose with the Bible, like Uzzah, not holding tightly to what it says, Uzzah directly disregarded Numbers chapter 4. Thought it didn't matter. Perhaps there's something in the Bible you're directly disregarding. And you're headed for the same fate as Michael and Uzzah. Number three, you've never been hated or looked down upon for your commitment to Jesus. If you've never been hated or looked down upon for your commitment to Jesus, you might have the spirit of Uzzah and Michael. David was ridiculed for being taking this Jesus thing too far. And if no one has ever said that to you, like, hey, you might be taking this God thing a little too far, then you're probably lukewarm. Every mighty man or woman of God has a trail of doubters and critics saying you're taking this too seriously. Now, Tim Keller says if you're always persecuted, you're probably a jerk. But if you're never persecuted, you're probably a coward. People of God should be dancing, should be doing crazy, ridiculous things for this glory of God in awe and wonder of Him. And if we're not laughed at or mocked or looked down upon or criticized, we're probably not responding correctly to His glory. Number four, you go to church on Sunday just to go, but really you go somewhere else to get fed for your soul, a podcast, a book, some other mega church that you watch online. And if you're doing this is because you're not trusting that God is here among these people at your church using your pastors and the other members that you have committed to. Number five, if you only read books about God instead of reading God's book, if you're only listening to sermons about God instead of talking to God, then you're living off other people's spiritual leftovers. Not eating of the true bread that he has already provided number six you're more interested in being cool than in being holy being cool mattered more to Michael being holy and in wonder mattered more to David number seven you don't ever wrestle with God's word David wrestled with God's judgment against Susa so if you're reading the Bible no matter what culture you're from no matter what age you are no matter what demographic or political affiliation You will find something in the Bible that offends you, that angers you. And if you're not finding anything in the Bible that offends you or angers you or makes you want to walk away, then you're not reading it. You probably created a God of your own image that always pleases you and does what you think should be done. If you're not disagreeing with God, then He's not your God. God's people wrestle with His Word and ultimately submit to it over time. Number eight, your deepest emotions are more tied to politics than eternity. I think this is a relevant one over this last year. I think this is why North American, American Christianity is so sick and weak and doesn't even know it. It's because we're bored with what the Bible reveals as mysterious and glorious. And we get red in the face about what hardly matters in the breath of eternity. Like you're really more upset about the next Supreme Court justice appointment, then your neighbor who's gonna spend eternity separated from God? Like that's what you're mad about? I'm not saying this doesn't matter, but you're gonna post about that? You're gonna devote your life to that? These justices will be dust in the wind in a couple years. This soul in the house next to you exists forever. Look at what you're angry about. Look at what makes you cry. And if it's things of eternity, you're on the right track. Lastly, if you think pleasing God and worship has more to do with what's on you than what's in you, David in this text does not care what's on the outside. There's not very much. He's dancing in his undies. Again, please don't come here naked. We're going to put clothes on you. But recognize that God doesn't care that you're wearing a suit. He's more focused on your soul. So Stop trying to impress him or others with what you got on your body. And please him with what's in your heart. Which should be a wonder at his glory. Michael and Uzzah presumed that they deserved to be near God. And so God punishes them. Partially. The text ends by telling us God kills Michael's womb. God is saying, I don't want this irreverence to be multiplied in any way. I will eradicate it now by killing Michael's womb. The punishment, along with Uzzah's, seems harsh. A sarcastic comment and a coldness towards God led to God killing her womb? This is another serious punishment for what we might consider a small, common sin. I mean, honestly, who among us has not had a moment of coldness towards God? Who among us has not picked up His Word nonchalantly and ignored it? Who among us has not offered a prayer Half-heartedly, like Uzzah and Michael did as they approached the things of God. Who among us would still be alive according to this standard? Do we realize the magnanimity of His grace? That we come into His presence day after day, year after year, with all of our sin, and He has not yet struck us down. And in just a few chapters, we're going to see that David... Does crimes like this and even worse, adultery, murder, conspiracy, corruption. And yet God remains in blessing and loving David. Was it because Michael's sin was worse? Was it because Uzzah was a worse guy? No, not necessarily. But here's the key. Michael's dignity and her pride and her self-reliance and Uzzah's coolness and casuality towards God prevented them from throwing themselves on God's mercy see ultimately it is not our bad deeds that keep us from God they can be forgiven it is our twisted confidence in our good deeds the things we take our pride in those keep us from God Because we think we can be in His presence and not be affected, and we think we deserve to be forgiven. And so we have no need for a Savior. Our pride keeps us from throwing ourselves on His grace. And so, friends, I implore you, as I'm doing today, as a broken human being who deserves to be struck down, I'm throwing myself on His grace. Jesus, you're my shield. And if you're not there, I'm getting struck. And I want to encourage you to say the same thing to him today. We forsake ourselves. We rip up our list of good deeds because they're trash anyway. They're done with the wrong motives. And we cling to Christ. Can you believe that God who holds the universe by the word of his power loved us enough to come and be our shield? Let's look to that good news today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, forgive me for not seeing your holiness and your glory as it is. Forgive me for ignoring you. Forgive us for being too casual about you and to erecting shrines in our glory, trying to make ourselves many gods under the big God. Lord, we recognize that we deserve the fate of the people of Noah who were drowned. We deserve the fate of Uzzah as we casually approach you. We deserve the fate of Michael who was cool towards you. We deserve the fate of Ananias and Sapphira because we have lied before you. And we deserve the fate ultimately of the cross facing your wrath. But God, we, cl- we cling unto Jesus, our shield, yeah. who guards us, who protects us from your wrath, and ushers us into your throne room as kids. Yeah. Thank you so much for Jesus, God. Yeah. And Lord, I pray for our church that we would live in a new sense of wonder today. Mm-hmm. That we would walk with you saying, I can't believe you're my God yeah. and you're living in me. Yeah. May we dance just a little bit more today. Yeah even in the hard days. And we're going to sing now because you're worthy of every song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast.